0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Jonathan All. Today we're discussing details of the package killer cold case from the 1990s, when a man abducted and murdered at least three women from South St. Louis. This man is known as the package killer, and the three murders remain cold cases nearly 30 years later. Joining me in studio to talk about this is reporter Ryan Krull, who investigated the details of these cold cases over the past year. Also, cold case detective Sergeant Joe Burgoon and Barb Stutt, the stepsister, of one of the women murdered by the package killer. Ryan, Sergeant Bergoon, and Barb, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Do you remember hearing about the package killer in the early 1990s? You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STLpublicRadio.org if you'd like to get in on the conversation. Also, today we're going to be talking about these cases and they involve murder and sexual assault. Some of the details may be upsetting to sensitive listeners. Ryan, let's start with you. You spent more than a year looking at these 30 uh, year old murders. Uh, for those people who may not remember them, uh, can you encapsulate what what they were and where it stands now?
1: Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, for a year throughout 1990 into 91, a little bit over a year actually, uh, three women, or some, I guess you should say, some someone abducted and murdered uh, three women, um, and they're all abducted from the same general area of South City, kind of around the intersection of uh, Cherokee and Jefferson, more or less. And um, yeah, abducted them, murdered them. And I, I suppose what sort of makes this sort of unique in St. Louis uh, criminal history is that uh, all of the victims were found in different parts of sort of the hinterland of St. Louis City, like O'Fallon or uh, Lincoln County. Um, and they were found along highways. Uh, uh, Robin Behan between two mattresses, Brenda Pruhet and a trash can. Uh, And Sandy Little in a sort of homemade box. So um, the sort of act of leaving the women in these different, you know, uh, receptacles, for lack of a better term, uh, is why um, uh, the few people who know about this case refer to the killer as the package killer.
0: And there there were a couple of suspects identified, but nothing that came close to an arrest. Um, And where has it? just kind of uh, from uh, the uh, public perception, has it just kind of fallen off the radar?
1: Yeah, I I think you could say that it was, um, and I I think definitely Barb and and Mm -hmm. Sergeant Burgoon could speak to this better than I could, but um, in just reading the news coverage at the time, um, there was a decent amount of it, a lot of front page coverage in like the Post-Dispatch in in 90 and 91. And then it just kind of dropped off a cliff. It just sort of disappeared and was never really mentioned um, in print media Again, at least, um, and I, I think, in as someone who's lived here pretty much my whole life, I had never heard of it, and I think, yeah. So I think it's totally accurate to say it's just kind of completely fallen out of the
0: city's collective conscience. Sergeant Burgoon, how common is it to solve a cold case decades after it uh, the crime was committed?
2: Well, the main thing is you have to have evidence, physical evidence, and. Uh, uh, these cases, there wasn't hardly any evidence at all.
0: And is that because of the state of decomposition and the, the if, if I'm reading the reports correctly, the state of decomposition and the fact that they were so scattered?
2: On the um, Robin Meehan, she was only she was found after um, several days. so mm-hmm. she was she wasn't in decomposition yet, okay. so there was it's our best bet.
0: And people may think about things like DNA testing and that kind of thing. That wasn't as refined and as as uh, uh, something that was as available back then.
2: No, they didn't start till ninety four, ninety five with DNA.
0: So, what uh, what what are the odds of a case that's this old with this little evidence ever uh, coming to any kind of conclusion?
2: Well, there's a possibility. That's the way you have to look at it. Um, uh, it's been tested, and they always. Uh, DNA is so much, uh, so many rapid changes with DNA. So uh, they can retest and retest until there's a problem where you use it all up, and then after that, you don't have anything.
0: What, uh, what kind of evidence do you think would have to happen to break this open where there would really be a substantial thing? What kind of evidence would law enforcement need? to To make significant progress on this,
2: I think that would be their DNA.
0: Mm-hmm. Barb, I th- thank you very much for coming in and talking. I imagine even this amount of time later, it's still difficult to talk about the loss of your stepsister.
3: Um, it is, and a lot of it had to do, you know, with the fact that um, being her family, we just never heard anything. The last I heard anything. Um, official was from her mother-in-law, and that was about a month after she was found, so since that time, we've never heard anything about the investigation. I didn't know who to contact about it. Um, You know, with all the rapid advances with the internet, of course, I would try doing Google searches on her name, on, you know, uh, the Cherokee murders, because at that time, that's what they were calling it, was the Cherokee murders, and, um, you know I never could find anything and so when Ryan managed to contact me out of the clear blue it was just such a shock and it is amazing um, how much you know you don't really think about it day to day after 30 years and now suddenly I think about it every day again and I do have to say I'm just really excited that um, Ryan came forward and wanted to do this piece on them and you know show the world that they were more than just dead bodies found on the side of a road.
0: Before we get too far into this, can you tell us about Sandy? Tell, tell us about who she was, what your memories of her, some of the things that make you happy when you think back about her.
3: Um, Sandy was a, a party girl. She was the life of the party. Um, everybody that knew her just loved her personality. Uh, she was very fierce and protective of, her younger, of our younger sisters and brothers. Um, she you know didn't have a problem standing up for them she would fight anybody who even looked at him wrong but other than that she just loved to laugh she was a person that you know she was just happy all the time and even when life wasn't going her way she didn't let things stop her she did what she had to do to survive um, so you know I was her older sister um, and she lived with me a couple of times when she was a teenager and um, you know we we got very close during those times Um, when her mom and my father got married she was about three and when she turned about five they moved down to southern Missouri and they lived there until my father passed away so I didn't see them as often when they were younger but once they came back to the St. Louis area I was pretty involved with their lives again and um, so when she went missing my mother my stepmother let me know that she was missing but at first I didn't seem to be too concerned about it, um, it but you know and then time went on and nobody had found her and then you know then they did find her finally um, and even at the time I get like I said I got more information from her her mother-in-law than I did from my stepmother because my stepmother just wasn't really given information and and even if she had been she wouldn't have really been able to understand what was said to her because she she has a, um, a mental problem. Um, and so, you know, I think I think they probably really just dealt with her mother-in-law at that point because they that was somebody that they could talk to and get information from. Plus, Sandy was living with her at the time that she went missing.
0: Ryan, what made you look into this?
1: Sure. So, I, I just sort of happened upon it. Um, I was looking through old copies of the Post-Dispatch on a, on a database, you know, as one does, right? <laughs> as yeah. one does. Um, a uh, word, uh, and basically just happened to sort of see in the early '90s that there was these headlines about this serial killer, um, which is a very loud headlines and, and that kind of thing that really kind of got, <coughs> your, got your attention. Um, and I was just reading the coverage, just sort of it, as a, as in just something that's intrinsically interesting. Um, then what stood out to me was that the story like sort of like what Barb alluded to, it, it lacked a resolution. There was no end. There was a few suspects here and there, but no one was ever arrested or or no one was at least ever charged. So that it, it just got me curious that, oh, this really, you know, big news event, this horrendous act, acts of violence. Um, how could there not be some kind of resolution or at the very least, how could there not be some awareness of it today? And those put those two things together, and I thought I should I should take a deeper dive into those.
0: Did you come to any conclusions on why you think that it kind of fell off the 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 public's radar?
1: That's yeah, that's a really good question. Um, It's hard to say for sure. I I mean, I think on some level the fact that it was three women, or you know, at least two of whom did have drug problems and um, were sex workers, I you know, two categories of marginalized, you know, individuals, um, that they both, they, and they fell into both those categories. I think it was easier for the public to just kind of write this one off and not have to worry about it. Um, and I, I do think that probably had something to do with the way it kind of slipped out of the public's conscience.
0: Sergeant Pergun, what do you think? Uh, why this, uh, people stopped thinking and talking about these cases?
2: Uh, well, originally it started out it was a Lincoln County case and they had came down to our office in homicide after, it took her four days before she was identified and then we went, uh, they no, make a notification with uh, Robin Meehan's mother and then we'd start working that case so what we could and uh, Lincoln County was kind of uh, shorthanded. They only, you know, it was a small department mm-hmm. and the Highway Patrol. Uh, assigned a sergeant, Don Baselli, to us. We had like a task force put together, and then we start working on that that case and trying to find out, you know, uh, as much as we could. And then we were also on the streets talking to the working ladies out there, see if they could help anything, you know, help us with anything.
0: And, and do you, do you, what, so why do you think maybe that, that after the initial media coverage of this that, that people lost interest and they stopped talking about it?
2: Um, it wasn't a high-profile case in a way. You know, with the victim, uh, every victim's a victim. And uh, some people just didn't want to get involved or they didn't know. These are strangers. These are type of people. They don't talk. They don't brag about what they do.
0: And in fact, one of the victims had almost no family that could be traceable or contactable.
1: Yeah, Brenda Pruitt, um, we, so I I really quickly, just as a quick aside, I I should give a quick uh, thanks and a shout out to uh, Stephanie Daniels, who helped did a lot of research for Mm the story, a lot of the reporting, uh, and I definitely want to thank her for that. Um, But yeah, she and I tried really hard to find anyone who may have even sort of a tenuous relationship, um, like a second cousin or something like that, of uh, Brenda Pruitt, we just couldn't find anyone. I know at the time, in the early 90s, Brenda Pruitt's parents were already pretty old, I believe. Yes. So, you know, in all likelihood, they've passed away. Um, And the only really thing that's mentioned in any of the news coverage I found about Brenda was that her family just didn't want anything to do with the media that I think some post-dispatch reporters came to their house and were turned away. But, I mean, yeah, if anyone's listening who knows, uh, you know, the Brenda Pruitt who died at the age of 27 in uh, 1990, you know, by all means, reach out. Um, We'd love to tell her story a little bit more fully.
0: We need to take a quick break, but then we'll come be back shortly to continue this conversation. You're listening to St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. We'll return to our conversation about 1990's package killer in a moment. But first, here are some of the stories our St. Louis Public Radio newsroom is following today. A Major League Soccer spokesman said Friday that MLS officials would not announce the next two expansion teams during the week of the All-Star Game. As league officials previously said they would... St. Louis soccer fans who've been eagerly awaiting the announcement will have to wait a little longer. And the St. Louis Department of Health and the Division of Corrections are providing hepatitis A vaccinations to inmates at the city's two jails. Outbreaks of the contagious liver disease have occurred across the nation, and people in jails are among the most at risk. Join St. Louis Public Radio this afternoon for local and regional news and throughout the day at our website, stlpublicradio.org. Now back to our conversation with Riverfront Times contributor Ryan Krull, who has investigated the details of these three cold cases from the 1990s. Also joining the discussion are Sergeant Joe Bergoon, a detective who worked on these and other cold cases in St. Louis over the past few decades, and Barb Stutt, the stepsister of one of the women murdered by the package killer. Let me start with maybe a, a more difficult question. There were three murders, are there more, and will we ever know? <laughs> Joe, you want to take a stab at that one?
2: <laughs> well, they have a, the FBI has a program called VICAP, Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. And what it does is looks at uh, unsolved homicides with a sexual nature. There's also sexual assaults and uh you submit those you make out there's online and you put the sub the, the facts of the case in there and it does a search it searches nationwide for similar crimes
0: but I mean at this point did if there were other crimes by that same individual do you think they would have been linked to them
2: um, the problem is with that program is some departments use it some departments don't and that's that's a big problem you know um, all over the country, we have cases like this. You never know if if there's similarities, a lot of similarities and things like that, you know, but that's one tool we have, we do have, and we try to use it.
0: Sergeant, I think a lot of our uh, our perceptions of serial killers are very much uh, shaped by uh, TV shows and uh, movies, uh, especially TV shows, it seems like crime, dramas with a serial killer aspect have ballooned in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, One of the things that a lot of people believe is that serial killers never stop. They just keep going. So this guy must have done, must have had more victims. What do you think about that? It's a
2: good possibility he did. You know, just uh, we don't know. You know, even though we try to... uh, Put the word out. But we have here. The FBI was uh, cooperated with us with their with the behavioral science and the VICAP program. where they were gonna, uh, they were gonna be involved if there was another victim found. What they were gonna do was <clears throat> just leave the body where it's found. We had permission with the medical examiners from St. Louis, St. Louis County, and the area region, and they would have their people come in here, the lab people plus the law enforcement here and collect the evidence and process it but we never had another case you know, did he move on we don't know
0: ryan uh can you talk a little bit more about the connection between sex work and cold cases because um that's definitely a possibility one of the reasons that that these victims have uh, been forgotten and and their cases not as actively pursued
1: Sure. So, um, what was really helpful to me and illuminating was talking to uh, a Dr. Kenna Quinnette, who's a criminologist at the uh, University of Indiana in Indianapolis, um, and she points out that uh, there's there's a lot of sort of things that make it harder to solve a murder when it's a, when the victim is a sex worker, and also the fact that um, even though um, in general, you know, people who are victims of serial killers, serial, serial homicides, is dropping you know, across the country, it's dropped a lot less in the past decades for sex workers, so more and more, if you're a victim of a serial killer, it's more than likely, or it's very likely that you are, you know, a sex worker just because they're such a sort of vulnerable um, uh, occupation. Um, But yeah, so she points to this idea that, um, or or she, she, you know, writes really well about this idea that basically because of the kind of the precarious nature of the work, um, you know, someone might disappear for a few days and people who know her, you know, but th- that won't really necessarily raise any alarm bells with people who know her. It could be that maybe she got arrested, right, for uh, soliciting, or maybe she, um, you know, found someone and they ran off for a weekend or whatever. That kind of thing. These things happen, so it can delay the reporting of a disappearance, or it can. it can. And also, it's also this idea that sex workers might just, for the sort of uh, nature of their work, be. Um, hesitant to contact law enforcement to begin with. So whenever the victim is a sex worker, there's just a lot you know, more difficulties in the case. Well, let me be more
0: direct. Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. think that the public cared less about these victims because of their background? I mean, if these three women had been nurses or lawyers or social workers or, or, or something else, do you think that that the public interest in trying to find their killer would have been higher?
1: I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I—that's I, that's the nature of counterfactuals. But I have—you have to think that would be the case, right? That if it were nurses or lawyers or whoever else, any, most in, most any other occupation, that the public would have been more engaged, more interested in, um, in the case. So going back to Dr. Quinet, for instance, she says that um, uh, oftentimes, you know, the, the police—they want to, a victim is a victim, just like Sergeant Burgund says—they want to solve the case. But at the same time, the police are part of society; they reflect society. And um, there's just some folks who are that society seems to have an easier time writing off than others. And I think that's also, you know, I don't want I'm obviously not going to criticize like another journalist, but I do think that sort of plays into why like the news coverage would just basically say this person, Robin Meehan, Sandy Little, um, was a sex worker or, you know, the, the term they used was a, a prostitute mm-hmm. um, and a murder victim. And then they, the papers just kind of left it at that. And I think um, that sort of maybe tacitly kind of gives, the public writ large a sort of permission to just not worry about this or to feel like th- this is someone else you don't need to worry about that um which is problematic obviously and i think that is why both the, the case fell out of the public conscience and probably also had something to do or is a contributing factor as to why there was never a resolution
0: and, and barbara how, do you think that that was one of the reasons why justice for your stepsister has been delayed if not denied I, I
3: do, I do believe that, um, you know, it's hard when you see it splayed across the front page that, you know, this Cherokee Street prostitute was found murdered, and, um, you know, it, it's, when they, when I, I was interviewed for the South Side Journal at the time, and at that time, you know, I tried to tell them the kind of person Sandy was, because just like Ryan had said, I wanted to make people aware she was more than just a prostitute, you know, she she did that as a means to survive. Um, she had a, a, a baby at home that wasn't quite a year old when she went missing and she was doing it partly to help get money to buy him formula and diapers. Um, prior to that she was doing it to pay her mother to stay at her mother's house every day. So, you know, Sandy was very um, entrepreneurial if you want to, to find ways that she could make money Quickly, when she needed to, and that was unfortunately the method she chose. Um, I know that uh, some of her um, people that were interviewed had said that she was a big drug user. When she lived with me, she was not using drugs. Um, she did drink a little bit, but she was. She and I do think she probably got into it somewhat, but I don't think. Anytime that I ever saw her, she was never messed up.
0: Society is a little more um, understanding of sex workers than they may have been 30 years ago. Okay. Do you think that that will help um, get more attention to these murders?
3: Actually, I think the fact that they're, it's brought back out into the light. Um, you know, you had mentioned how, like, sex gr- crimes on TV are such a big thing. Um, I think that because it is, it's going to make people want to find out now, you know, why, Why wasn't this ever ever come to a conclusion of some sort? And um, so I, I really hope that that's exactly what happens is that you know people take a look at the fact more that they were more than just prostitutes. They were young girls that had families and had children and had people that cared about them and you know they deserved to find justice.
0: There, there have there were two suspects that were identified. There were a number of persons of interest, but only two people who kind of rose to the level of a suspect. And Ryan, suspect number one, you chose not to name in your story. Why was that?
1: Well, yeah, after a lot of consideration, um, it just seemed unfair to name that individual because talking to uh, Sergeant Bergoon and other law enforcement officials who only talk on background, it seemed more than likely that, you know, almost for sure that this individual was not the uh, culprit. But the curious thing is is that speaking to um, a lot of uh, like the relatives and the the, you know the immediate family of some of the victims this person's name would come up again and again and there seemed to be something that sort of seemed to be a tension between those two ideas Um, the idea that the police could, could kind of rule this person out talking to me but in the people who probably you know care the most about this the families of the victims this was the person whose name they—he did it. He did it. He did it. And I—I I didn't. It was a tough thing to think about as a reporter. I didn't know exactly how to deal with it. So, I guess sort of writing about this individual but not naming them—I um, guess it was sort of a compromise.
0: Uh, Sergeant Bergoun, can you share with us maybe what about suspect number one made the police say we're pretty sure this isn't the guy?
2: Well, we—we uh, we were able to get hold of his car. We had his car towed in, we got a search warrant, and they processed it. <clears throat> we didn't find anything in there tying the, any of the victims. Uh, when, the third, when Sandy was found, he was out in California uh, sleeping in a park in a car, and the police out there were watching him all the time, but he'd been there a while, so whoever, he didn't have time to deposit s- Sandy alongside the highway. So we kind of eliminated him on that. After uh, Robin Meehan, we had him in quite a bit on that case. And then uh, when Brenda Pruitt was found, lo and behold, we come to work in the morning and there he is sitting there waiting for us. You know, so he knew we were gonna be coming talking to him again, you know, and he he had an alibi where he was at and everything. Uh, he, He had some mental issues. And that's how his attention came to the police because uh <clears> the <throat> police got a call down where he an area where he lived at in February, and it was bitter cold and here's a woman running up the street nude beating on a door for help so something he had to have some something had to scare her, they would do that do something like that you know and so we were aware of him but uh uh, but there wasn't any evidence to to uh, charge him.
0: Suspect number two, Ryan, you did name Frederick Brown, who mm-hmm. is in prison um, for uh, 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 an assault that's shockingly similar in a way.
1: Yeah, it's basically identical um, to the other three victims, with the exception of the the victim in, in that case, uh, which was in 1993 was abducted from uh, the Illinois side of Mississippi. I think it was uh, East St. Louis. And yeah, I I did name him, um, but because I did that, I definitely, I wasn't going to name him if I wasn't able to get something from him. Like his, you know, for lack of a better term, his side of the story, I wanted him to be able to say, I I, I listed basically the sort of admittedly circumstantial evidence against him um, in the story. And then I also emailed that to him in prison as well and said, well, what do you say about this? And then I printed his
0: reply in the paper uh, in the story. Um, well, and let's get yeah. to his reply. It is very interesting because one of the things that he told you was they shouldn't be looking at all three of these from the same person. It could have been more than one. They should be looking at these individually. Was uh, Sergeant Bergoon, was that a a thoughtful, uh, a thoughtful revelation, or was it someone who might be guilty trying to throw you off the track?
2: Well, it could be. We knew it could be more than one because, um, you know, the, the each victim, you know, that's, that, there was a mattresses. It takes more than one person, possibly, to have to handle that. And the same thing with uh, Brenda; she was in a trash can. And those are pretty heavy when you got a body in there. It'd take more than one person, you know, possibly to have to handle that.
0: So there could be an accomplice.
2: There could have been. Or
0: could could the murders be completely unrelated? Could it be that someone happened to kill one or two but not all three of these women and just dispose of their bodies (laughs) in similar ways?
2: Well, the FBI, when they looked at it and— they reviewed each case, and they, they were of the opinion it was one person, it was the same person doing these.
0: Barb, there are two suspects, you know their names. What do you think of, of uh, from your perspective as a advocate for your stepsister, um, whether one or both of these men might be involved?
3: Um, I had only heard of the second suspect um, from Ryan. I had never even heard of But like I said, we I stopped hearing anything at all after about the first month. But during that month, the first suspect was brought to my attention by uh, Sandy's mother-in-law. Um, she wholeheartedly believed it was him. She knew that he had been in California when Sandy's body was found. But for some reason, she had it firmly implanted in her mind that he was 100% responsible. I don't know why she never shared that with me, but um, as soon as he said the name,
0: I said, that's the one that I was told about. Well, and, and Ryan, do you, uh, you said that all three of the family or the, the, the families that you were able to contact knew of this guy and his name. In what context was it? I mean, with, I know you want to protect his identity, but in what context did they know anything
1: yeah that's a, a really good question um so my understanding i think sergeant bragoon can correct me if i'm wrong is that he seemed to have something of a sort of known history in that sort of uh jefferson cherokee area um so i think they were known he was known to some of the folks um in that way but like i mean a,
0: like a neighborhood near do well that, <laughs> that i mean i think knows? that would be
1: putting it mildly but yeah we, we can go with that um uh and i mean and i'm not uh, just to be blunt people you know like sandra mehan um chris day uh who is uh sandy little's uh, uh child's father um they were you know within a few minutes you know this this person's name came up uh chris day for instance is maybe like the third sentence he said to me uh was this you know if you heard this guy's name he, he did it but again, talking to Sergeant Bergoon and some other sort of law enforcement sources who wouldn't go on the record, um, uh, I just, I don't know, I just, I guess, would to err on the side of caution and not print his name. We can always print it later in another story. And I will say I tried to reach out to this individual um, to no avail.
0: Sergeant Burgoon to wrap up our conversation today, what happens next? I mean, do you just sit and wait to see if this new round of publicity um, gets somebody to remember something or... Suggest that they know something and wait for new evidence, or is there much else that can happen
2: at this point? Well, we're you know they re um, they started uh, the major case squad net. They got together uh, last year and they start reviewing everything, trying to see if they could retest evidence and things like that. So that's that's where they're at on those. Yeah. There was one other thing though. There was a minister. um, uh, Robin's mother got hold of a minister. In memorial service, Barb, do you remember that? There was a no. m- memorial service for all three victims, and the minister was saying, you know, remember them when they were young, and they were innocent and happy. You think, it, remember them that way, not what happened, you know, with drugs and things like that, where, you know, that it, it just takes over their lives. But, uh, so, but we're, we'll pay, any information comes in, we'll, we'll pass it on, we'll, it will be investigated.
0: I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Ryan Krull, Riverfront Times contributor, assistant teaching professor in the Department of Communication and Media at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Retired St. Louis Police Sergeant Joe Burgoon now works cold cases for the department, and Barb Stutt, stepsister of Sandy Little and one of the victims. Thank you all for being here today.
1: Thank you. For thank you.